for half a century, WJPZ Syracuse has been the greatest media classroom on the planet. We've trained students from the 1970s to the 2020s on how to run a professional radio station. But the lessons learned and relationships formed go far beyond studios and transmitters. Taking a look back through the eyes of those who experienced it. This is WJPZ at 50. Welcome to WJPZ at 50. I am John Jagay. Uh, you may recognize the voice you're about to hear on today's podcast from the induction video of Happy Dave, Father Dave Dwyer, into our Hall of Fame this year. And full disclosure, we're recording this the Thursday after banquet, so if I still have a frog in my throat a week later, that's why. Hotshot Scott, Scotty Bergstein, Syracuse class of 89, welcome to the podcast. Jag, it's good to be here. And, and uh, first of all, most importantly, thanks to you, for everything that you've done. I've listened to a bunch of them to reintroduce ourselves to a lot of people who we only ever met at banquets. And, and honestly, what you're doing is is spectacular. And thank you. I know they thanked you at the banquet this weekend and, and well-deserved, but great work, my friend. It's really, really fantastic. That's what I'm going to do for the rest of the podcast. I'm going to have people come on and tell me how great I am. This will be tremendous. So thank you. I, <laughs> you well-deserved. And I say that, of course, tongue-in-cheek, because today's episode is about you, Hotshot Scott. Where'd you grow up? How'd you end up at Syracuse? And how'd you end up at the radio station? I grew up in Allentown, Pennsylvania. I moved to Florida in high school and ended up at Syracuse because, like most people, I wanted to be a sports broadcaster. Hang on. One more mark on the tote board yep. in here. Tick that off and okay. Yeah. And I got to Syracuse and on my floor freshman year was Mike Tirico. And I saw what Mike was doing with his little tape recorder and going to the dome. And I saw how passionate he was. And I realized very quickly that I was not going to be a sportscaster. <laughs> I feel like the same thing happened to me 10, 15 years after that, where I'm like, OK, I love this, but I cannot compete with these guys who just have yeah. it in their blood and girls, yeah. too. Not a chance. Passion was there. And what's amazing about that is that's one of the first things I learned when I was at school is do something that you're passionate about. And I clearly was more passionate about telling stories than I was about being a sportscaster. Okay. I went to a uh, information session my freshman year when the station was still on local cable TV. And a lot of people told this story. I went to the session. I met a lot of people. Happy Dave was up and he was telling uh, everybody what to do. And I was given a 4 to 7 a.m. shift. And I went the first time. And the first time I went for a 4 to 7 a.m. shift, I was horrible. I was truly a lesson in my air check. And I still have it. And I go back to it every once in a while. It's a blessing and a curse. Yeah, it was horrible. But the <laughs> great thing about being on 4 to 7 a.m. and nobody being able to hear you is that I stayed and I would listen to... I have a philosophy, Jack. You know that that thing about everything you ever needed to know you learned in kindergarten? You know that book? Have you heard that? Yeah, yeah. I actually believe that everything I needed to know in life, I learned at WJPZ. I love that. I truly believe that. And I'll give you some examples of that. And the first example is this. I stuck around for the morning show to listen to people who actually knew what they were doing. <laughs> and they were great. And they taught me and they told me that they had listened to part of my show when they were coming in and I was like, oh my God, it was so horrible. I'm so sorry. And they was like, no, 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 there's some potential. And, and I remember one of the people on that morning show was Julie Bruno. Mm -hmm. And she said to me, she said, you need a name, you need a character. And I went, well, I'm, I'm myself, I'm Scott Bergstein. And she said, no, you need a name. And I came in the next week. Remember, we got to do like one shift a week. And, and Julie says, I have it. You're hot shot, Scott. Wow. It was Julie Bruno who gave you the name. Yeah. And it wasn't me. And I went, I don't want to be hotshot, Scott. That sounds so... <laughs> <laughs> that, 
that sounds so boastful and that's not who I am. And, and, uh, but I try it. So now uh, my third week and I remember, and I go with Hotshot Scott and I try it and immediately I find my character. It's still me. It's still real, but it's that extra me. It's that extroverted me who frankly I wasn't at the time. And I became this character who was still a lot of me, but it, Hotshot Scott became my character and it opened up a world to me. It's so funny you say that because as you heard, your boy, Dave Dwyer, when he became happy Dave Dwyer, he gained that confidence on the air. I'll say the same thing for myself. John Gay, as an 18-year-old kid, had no self-confidence whatsoever. But hiding behind the veneer of Jag and that extension of the character, it gave this confidence and this like sense of uh, identity and belonging. So uh, same stories that go through the generations. Yeah, no question about it. So... I find my character and immediately and I know and immediately I'm obsessed and I've like, I've found something. I found something that I really, truly love. I'm not good at it. I'm not good at it at all, but I love it and I'm really enjoying it and I'm really enjoying, it's a drug and we're telling these little tiny 30 second stories, which leads to the rest of my life, which I'll get to, but, and we're quick and we're concise and we're hitting posts and I am a master at hitting the post. And I am so excited about it every time. And I'm prepping in between songs. I'm not even listening to the songs. I'm just prepping (laughs) what I'm going to say. Yep. And I go onto the Zub list and I take every shift that comes my way. Any shift that I can when I don't have a class, I take it that first semester freshman year. Now, there's all kinds of stuff going on at that time because they're preparing to go on the air. And here's a second part of that. Everything I learned in life, I learned at WJPZ. Surround yourself with people that are so much smarter than you are that you could learn from them at all times. And I was so lucky, honestly, to be surrounded by these guys who were so much smarter than I was (laughs) that that were able to put this radio station on the air January of my freshman year of college. Mm -hmm. Happy Dave, who's the chief announcer at that time, comes to me and I'm taking every shift that I can. It's still all overnight stuff. I think I got one 10 to 1 a.m. to 1 p.m. shift that entire time. Right. Okay. And I'm developing this character and I'm finding out where that character is and how much of that character is really me and how, you know, and where that melding becomes. And Happy Dave comes to me and says, okay, we're going on FM. I'm changing up the, you know, the air shifts. What shift do you want? I said, drive time. Nice. And he laughed. He laughed that Happy Dave laugh. He's like, I can't put you on drive time. You're first semester freshman. I said, well, you asked me what I want. So I said, well, what I want. There is another lesson, right? Go for what you want. Don't ever shy away from what you want. Don't believe that you can't do what you think you can do, even if you can't do it. It's a little, look, it's a little bit of that fake until you make it yeah, kind yeah. of mentality. But if you don't have that, you're never going to get anywhere. So we go on air. I have vivid, vivid memories of that night of, of Chris Mossman and Larry Barron. Again, people who are so much smarter than I am. Larry rest in peace, who went on to become one of my best friends and and roommates with me in California, but we'll get into that. I get afternoons. I get 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. Okay. I am stoked (laughs) that Happy Dave gives me 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. But more importantly, he puts me on the Zub list for everything up until nighttime, meaning I can do drive time if it's available. Okay. And again, I take everything single shit that comes my way. I'm skipping classes. I'm, I'm skipping 
practices. Uh, um, I was on the crew team. I'm taking every shift that comes my way because I am obsessed with the radio station. Then it was a uh, sophomore year. I get drive time. Okay. And I stayed on drive time sophomore year all the way through the end of senior year. I loved it. But going back to this idea of surrounding yourselves with people who are smarter than you. I mean, I just want, honestly, when you think about that era, when you think about these guys who put us on the air, first of all, Eric Fitch, who, who was doing things with the transmitter, which oh, yeah. I don't even understand. But Happy Dave, Rich Usher, Mossman, Barry, uh, uh, Mary Mancini, who was a musical genius. Mm -hmm. Ben Green, Bokoff, Dave Levin, just amazing, amazing people. But also Chris Bungo and Rocco Macri, who obviously worked together. Mm -hmm. What these guys did to make us sound professional. Now, I, I know Chris with his whole thing about loving Z100. And, and by the way, that's a lot of where Hotshot Scott came from was Hollywood Hamilton, as we were all friends, acquaintances with Hollywood Hamilton, okay. for Chris God's sake. You know, so everybody had to have a name, whatever that name was, Dancing Dave, Happy Dave, you know, Mary Mary, Hotshot Scott. Everybody had their name, right. which continued on and had their character, right? So we go on air, I'm doing drive time, I'm doing Friday zappy hour with ERR in which ERR is on air and I am at the bars for happy hour having a blast on the payphone calling into the station every half hour with Friday zappy hour. That's amazing. Live remotes via payphone and if if you're too young to know what a payphone is, google it. On a payphone in the hallway calling 443 hits. That's amazing. Yeah, it was wild. You're talking about this, Scotty, and Hal talked, we'll probably get to this later, Hal talked about how you talked to his son about going to Syracuse and basically sold him on Syracuse. I texted Hal earlier and I said, what should I ask Scott about? And he said, he really was a key member of that crew that really ushered in the flamethrower years. And you're describing all these people around you and you were certainly a key part of that too. Well, what that did was Rocco was a marketing genius. He probably didn't even know it at the time, but it <laughs> was. Again, that idea of you fall into what, you really might do for the rest of your life um, by working at the station. Rocco was his marketing genius and we learned how to counter program. And that's when we started making this shift to CHR and battling 93Q. And how do you counter program, not just in the music that we were playing, but in the promotions that we were doing in at one point, giving away a car at the state fair. But it started with Burger King and, and, and the local bars and whatever the club was that was Carousel or some disco where we all used to go and DJ at the disco. Ugh. And then my generation, you talk about working, uh, again, generations are so quick in college, right? It's, it's, it, generations happen in years as opposed to life where it's every 10 years, right? But my generation, th these unbelievably smart guys, Carl Weinstein is still one of my, my closest friends to this day, mm -hmm. who obviously became the program director and really facilitated that switch to being a pure CHR classroom. Now, leaning party, leaning dance, leaning at the time what was called urban, Yep, but being a pure classroom to prepare people to work in not just radio, but the entertainment business as a whole because of everything that was going on. Because you could learn how to be a general manager. You could learn how to be a chief engineer. You could learn promotions. You could learn music. You could learn just how to be a great DJ. And the people that were on, quote unquote, my generation, 
Kevin Tippy Martinez, E-double-R, who was an amazing character, who went on to continue to be a character. He does sports in Texas right now. Cousin Danny, who did the morning show, uh, one of my roommates uh, with Larry Barron. These amazing sports guys, Charlie Palillo, Denneroth, Heller, Diamond Jim Ryan, Jim Mahoney, and Andy Renninger. I mean, amazing DJs. I even did a morning show with a guy named Chris Renault, who had nothing to do with radio, but he's developing these characters. And if you know Chris, Chris has gone on to direct Despicable Me and Secret Life of Pets. And he's one of the world's top animators. And he's developing characters with me on the Crazy Morning Crew. And I was an afternoon radio guy. Why am I doing the Crazy Morning Crew? Well, because that door opened a little tiny bit. I was like, well, let's go check it out and see what it is. I wasn't the best guy for morning radio. I wasn't a great straight man like Happy Dave, but we had a good time. And then that next generation of T-Bone and Scott Meach and Hal Rude and Gigi Katz, I mean, amazing DJs, amazing characters. It became my home and I'm I'm so proud of it. I'm so proud of the time that I spent there. It really does come across just in your voice and as I'm watching your body language right now too. And to put a bow on the flamethrower piece of it, I'm looking at my text now from Hal. He said, this is how the flamethrower name came into be, was that he was sleeping on your couch in L.A. his senior year spring break. He meets Joel Denver of All Access, the big radio publication, and Joel publishes an article calling Z89 the 100-watt flamethrower. That's how the nickname for that era came about. So you have a key role in that as well. Yeah, I mean, I was out of school by that point, but, you know, around for it. And that idea of, of continuing the promotion of the radio station, well, think about that. We were a hundred watt radio station. Now, I know that some of the chief engineers screwed with that a little bit. And sometimes <laughs> we were a little bit more and a little bit less. Statute of limitations, statute of limitations. <laughs> but we were a hundred watt radio station battling really 93Q, but also battling Y94 and some of the other stations in town to the point where we started looking at our ratings. Yeah. And it was fun to look at our ratings because we're <laughs> growing in the yep. area. And we're not supposed to reach much more than the campus. But that idea, again, I'm going to bring it back to promotions, that idea of promoting the radio station, of promoting ourselves and figuring out what our place was and counter-programming was a fascinating thing to do as a 19-year-old. And it was fascinating not only to do it, but to see the results of it and to see those results, in our case, obviously the ratings, because that's what we were following is the book came out of work in the book <laughs> was, was amazing. Again, that idea of what I learned at JPZ, I used for the rest of my life. No question about it. Scott, you've talked about the transition over to FM. We've had a lot of your classmates on talking about what a big deal that was. I know something you wanted to bring up that hasn't come up a lot in the podcast yet is the uh, student association sit-in at the radio station. Yeah, so I think the story has been told about obviously going on FM. The story has been told, you know, Carl with, I think, Rocco's help wrote this manifesto about it all came from, are we going to continue taking student government money, or are we going to go on our own, right? Right. We made a decision to go on our own. And part of that was the radio station going to a fully CHR at the time format with a clock and all of that stuff that Carl as the program director did. At the time, I was the music director, mm -hmm. which was about as far as I would ever go in the senior staff because uh, I, I didn't have the, uh, probably the mental acuity to, to move any further. <laughs> so music was as far as I would go. 
And Carl wanted to take it to the CHR place. And we talked about taking it to more of a dance slant. And I remember having big arguments with the senior staff about playing a song called Boom, Boom, Boom. Let's go back to my room. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it was something that became a thing on campus when we did play it. And we pushed hard for the CHR format with a dance slant. And we found our place. But at the time, and I think the story has been told as well, there was a lot of pushback from not only the school, but student groups. A lot of people who wanted us to be block format radio, which I totally understand. And again, this idea of going away from that future hits and something that Mary Mancini had put into place with amazing music with The Cure and Depeche Mode and, and these bands that I used to listen to. Oh, yeah. All the time. And I loved that music, but we went away from college music. We went away from alternative and we went to what we did and not we embraced it. That said, there were groups that did not and there were groups that wanted their say. So we go away from SGA financing. We take it on our own. We have to go find our own money, our own promotions, all of that stuff. And one of the biggest moments that I remember was the Student African American Society, the SAS stage a sit-in at the radio station. Mm -hmm. This was fascinating. So I don't remember who was on air, but there was a guy on air late at night. He opened the doors, which typically were locked. The SAS came in and they, they staged an extremely peaceful, respectful sit-in on the idea of getting even, basically it was block format. They weren't just sitting in to get black music on the stations, quote unquote, you know, or, or urban slanted music, they were sitting in to have it become more block formatted again. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just about them, so to speak, right? And it wasn't necessarily a them versus us thing. But this was fascinating because Bokoff was the general manager, if I remember correctly. Brian Dubkowski was on the senior staff. Who, who Brian Dubkowski was an amazing production guy, by the way. Carl was on the senior staff. He might have been the consultant at that point. So we're in the senior staff office. This is the old station in Watson, which is next to the new station, right? Yep. We're in the senior staff office. We have the door barricaded to where the on-air booth is and the production booth is because the SAS is doing a sit-in. The cops are there. The local TV news stations are there. Mm. And everybody's treating this as if it's a massive war. I and a bunch of other people had a bunch of friends who were part of the SAS. And the SAS had a bunch of friends at the radio station. And, and, and I was there. And I realized that this is a little bit ridiculous. You know, there's not going to be any violence. I was convinced of that. So I opened the door. Okay. Much to the cops' dismay. <laughs> yeah, okay. I can see that. You know, I'm getting screamed at. Don't open the door. I was like, no, I'm going to open the door. This, and I went and I sat with the SAS, not as a part of their sit-in, but to talk. I was like, somebody's got to talk because the police are talking about negotiations and, and the SAS isn't speaking. And I was like, this is ridiculous. We're a bunch of college students. So I opened the door. I went in. I sat and I went, what are you guys doing? This is my home. I live here. I'm here all the time at the radio station. I literally probably spend six hours a day here because I love being here. Some of you guys love being here as much as I do. And then there was a back and forth about the music and about all this. And we had, I'm telling you, Jag, one of the most fascinating conversations about music that I've ever had. And it actually, we went even more dance slanted and then added some shows, which Carl did. Uh, there was a Saturday night dance party, which was a fantastic show. And we did add some specialty shows, but it was really, really interesting because it wasn't about 
it was the SAS was representing all the students mm-hmm. and not just representing themselves, although that was the outward appearance of it, if that makes sense, right? But it was our house that we spent a lot of time building, so to speak. Yeah. And we kind of came to an agreement and, and it all ended very peacefully and it ended rather somewhat uneventfully. But it taught me that it doesn't work all the time. And look, life has become much more combative. Polarized. With this country being so split right now, right? But it taught me that if people just talk to each other, that you can work a lot of things out. And it doesn't seem to me like that happens nearly enough. There's a lot of yelling and there's not enough talking. A lot of lessons to be learned in today's podcast, and that might be one of the most significant ones. It's WJPZ at 50. Hey, it's Jag. You're probably listening to this episode of the podcast because you know the person I'm interviewing. But one of the true joys of this project has been learning the stories of everyone in the WJPZ family. When you're done with this podcast, I'd encourage you to check out an episode with someone you don't know. You never know what you might have in common with your other WJPZ relatives. Looking back at half a century of broadcast excellence. This is WJPZ at 50. Those of you who aren't familiar with your story, let's start when you graduate Syracuse. JPZ has instilled this love of telling stories. It wasn't just being a DJ, but in my case, it was the love of telling quick stories. I didn't know what that was going to lead to, but it's this love of story. So I came to LA and I futzed around as a PA wherever I could get a job. And I did a lot of fun things. I, I, I ran security and volunteers for the Emmy Awards and the ACE Awards, in which case I had a lot of friends come out and they could be seat fillers and escorts. Okay. Yeah. For the Emmy Awards, which was a lot of fun because, you know, is every star in, that was there as my buddies were arm in arm, walking them up and saying, please come this way. And, and it, was a, it was a lot of fun. But within about six months, I landed a job for one of my idols as a filmmaker, which was Ridley Scott. Mm-hmm. I went to LA with these two completely disparate idols. There was John Hughes, who was 16 Candles in The Breakfast Club, and there was Ridley Scott. Well, I learned because there was no internet, and I didn't know this once I came out to LA, is that John Hughes operated out of Chicago. I had come all the way to LA, so I wasn't (laughs) going to be able to find a job with John Hughes. I was able to get a job with Ridley Scott as his assistant on Thelma and Louise. Wow. I was on Thelma and Louise from the very, very beginning when Thelma and Louise was at one point Kirstie Alley and Cher. No kidding. I didn't know that. Okay. Well, there was lots and lots of, you know, as they were going through casting. And I was on all the way through production, all the way through the end. The great thing about that was I spent my time basically driving Ridley around and keeping my mouth shut and learning everything that I could. And he was able to, through the grace of God, stuck me into the art department by the end of the movie. And I got to work with an art director named Norris Spencer, who had designed Blade Runner and Alien and a bunch of other films. And what I learned, and I honestly did not know this, Jag, is there was this entire world of commercials. And I was an idiot at the time and did not know that Ridley had directed the Apple 1984 commercial. But I learned. Oh, yeah. okay. And he stuck me into his commercial production company, RSA. I worked my way up from being an assistant to a set PA to I, within the art department. And thanks to a couple of art directors, one named Nora Spencer, another guy named Arthur Max, who has a couple of Academy Awards. I was their assistant and then an art director. 
And eventually a production designer at a very, very young age, because uh, there was a certain amount of comfort with me. So I got to do, I got to be an art director on a lot of smaller commercials and eventually bigger commercials. And by the time I was 25 or 26, I was a production designer working with Ridley Scott and Tony Scott and David Fincher and Mike Karbelnikov and Jake Scott and a lot of other people. Um, I learned pretty quickly on that this idea of telling stories I really loved. I didn't love being a production designer and, and I wanted to be a director. So let's go all the way back to I want to be on drive time, right? Yeah. I want to be a director. Well, everybody in LA says I want to direct. <laughs> I decided to go ahead and do it. I did a spec reel. My art department coordinator at the time was a woman named Lee Trask, who is now my wife. <laughs> she said, all right, you want to direct, right? And I said, yeah, yeah, I want to direct. How are we going to do that? She said, great, I want to produce. I'll produce your spec reel, but you have to promise me. You have to promise me a couple of things that you'll always, always be kind on set. I was like, oh, be kind. Something I learned at WJPZ. There were three things I learned at WJPZ. I swear it was talk less, listen more, and be kind. Wow. All those other things, all those other things, talk less. That was a whole thing about being a DJ, right? Yeah. Get in, get out. One thought. In, out, hit the post, gone. I've always said good DJs know what to say. Great DJs know what not to say. Yeah. So- Listen more, talk less, listen more. Listening to me was the hugest thing I learned at the station was listen to all these people that are smarter than I am. Listen and learn. I didn't go to film school. I went to Newhouse. I was a TRF production major. I had a minor in production design and I was able to build that into a career, but I really wasn't a filmmaker. I learned how to be a filmmaker just by listening and by watching and standing next to Ridley Scott on... <laughs> I don't even know how many commercials all over the world. And then be kind in many ways came from my wife because at the time it was sort of fashionable to be bombastic on set and be a bombastic director. But the people that were the most successful were not those. They were the ones who were kind and thoughtful and listened and got their point across, right? And I directed a spec reel. I ended up winning a decent amount of awards for a spot that I did for Special Olympics. Within my first year, I did some spots for ESPN for their college football campaign. That was 99. And from that, I had a career directing commercials. And I am grateful every day. I've directed about 1,300 commercials, give or take. Okay. For every fast food you can imagine. <laughs> um, I did a ton of work for Lay's Potato Chips uh, for the okay. World Cup for about 12 years in which I got to travel the world and, and work with every soccer star imaginable, which was a lot of fun. I do a bunch of sports, which is great fun. I've worked with everyone from Shaq to Joe Paterno to uh, just sort of everyone. And it's been a lot of fun. And the thing about it is this love of telling quick stories came from the radio station. I, there's no doubt about it in my mind that if you go all the way back, so our first birthday banquet, right, is 86, I think, January of 86. Sounds right. And we did this unbelievable, way too long, two-minute promotion in which- I believe we played that in the, uh, in the Rocco and, and Chris episode. Yeah, it was way too long. It's like two minutes. Yeah, it was ridiculous. And I'm convinced that I don't have a radio voice. I never did have a radio voice, but I had a passion for what I was doing. And I had fun and I had created this character, this, I created Hotshot Scott. 
And it was so much fun doing that promo that I'm convinced that from that promo, I had this love of advertising. I still have this love of advertising. I still get ridiculously excited when I get storyboards or I, or, or I write something or the best thing in the world is being on set. The best thing, and I love it, and I love telling stories anywhere from 15 seconds to 30 seconds to 60 seconds to two minutes. I love that because there's a certain mass to those stories. They're so quick. And I've done a few TV shows. I've never done a movie, to be honest with you. And, I, and I'd still love to do that as a storyteller. But telling a story in 30 seconds, there's this mathematics to it that is, yes, you have to. And and most of the time I do is you figure out every single second of how to tell that story with a proper beginning, middle and an end. It's funny, you know, you talk about being an afternoon guy that did mornings. I can't tell you how many times in my career I would tell a morning show host that I work with, dude, like, I can't do what you do and do all these crazy bits and stuff. And the morning show host look at me and say, you can talk over a Katy Perry intro for 15 seconds and nail it every time. I could never do that and be compelling. Without thinking about it. So not only did you find your calling in doing this, but you met your wife in the process. I did. I did. You know, it's funny. She interviewed at one point to work with me and evidently I didn't give her the time of day because I was on set. <laughs> I was working. And as she tells it is, um, you know, she kind of pursued me and we kept running into each other at different production companies. And I finally caught on and, and uh, then we were working together and sort of like I, asked, I, I like to say, she got the ultimate gig, even though she didn't get that first gig. She got the ultimate <laughs> gig. <laughs> <laughs> does she, how does she feel about that statement when you say it that way? Yeah, she didn't like it. she doesn't like anything about that but uh truthfully i have an amazing relationship i am eternally great you know i talked about working with uh, surrounding yourself with people smarter than you are Mm. my wife is way smarter than i am oh we are in the same boat i tell all my single friends do it i did marry somebody smarter than you yeah totally and i and i am you know what jack i'm grateful that i found something that suits my attention span uh, you know commercials and directing and it's fast paced and it's exciting. And I love it the way that I loved being at the station. I found something that I love to do. I'm so grateful. I'm so lucky. And look, I work my ass off to make that luck for myself, I guess is how you would say it. But I'm so grateful that I get to do this. I'm so grateful to be a director. It's, it's so much fun. And I still work with my wife. She's still my producer and she's the best in the business. Really, she's she's amazing. And, and like I said, I sometimes I need to shut up and listen because she knows what's going on and she helps me tremendously all the time. She helps me creatively and, and certainly in the way that she produces the work that I do. Do you have uh, somewhat opposite personalities where you complement each other well? Very much so. It's actually it's easier to work with each other than it is to live or be married to each other because our, our work roles are so defined. I say, yeah, okay. You know, you do this, I do this. We know what we do. We do it well and we mesh really, really well so that when we get home, it's like, it's like, well, I'll, I'll tell you a little story. My wife's a producer, which means she's, at least in my world, she's a line producer. She's an organizer. She makes sure mm. everything that is not in front of the camera runs perfectly at all times. Yeah. And my job is to make sure what everything in front of the camera looks pretty and acts pretty and looks the way I want it to be and pretty or funny or whatever you want it to be. Then we get home and she's like, I don't want to organize our travel. You do the travel. I I spend all day organizing. So 
it's kind of fun. I get crazy about travel and I research all this stuff and then she doesn't have to do it. And she just comes into my office and she says, so what are the options? And I say, so yes, it's, it's our roles are defined. We're very different when we're on set, but then uh, when we're home, it blurs a little bit. That's funny because my wife is the brains of the operation. I say that she's the CFO of my podcast company because she's the one where I'll say, hey, will you look at this email before I send it because I'm getting too emotional about it? Or I'm the people pleaser and she's the business minded person to say, nope, don't give that away for free. Don't give them a discount on that. They don't deserve the discount on that. So we balance each other out really, really well. Although she's the vacation planner, not me. For sure. And in some ways, I mean, a lot of us from the station, we kind of grew up and in, in many ways we're performers in our own way. Yeah. In my case, behind the camera, in your case, you know, producing your shows, but still a lot of times behind the camera, behind the microphone, so to speak, but still performing in our way. You know what I mean? And then to have that person who can, I think, ground us and honestly, call us on our own shit. Yes, absolutely. Is the greatest, as hard as it is. <laughs> you know, and you fight your own ego sometimes, but to have the person who checks you at points is the greatest thing in the world. I really feel like I'm looking in a mirror right now. Uh, <laughs> my wife and I have to come out to L.A. and have a drink with you and your wife. I think the four of us will get along just fine. Do you guys have any kids? No, just the dog. I got two amazing kids. I have two boys. I have a 17-year-old and a 20-year-old. My 20-year-old is at school at UC Santa Barbara. And you want to talk about the most different school from Syracuse that you could possibly, <laughs> uh, you know. So besides the weather. But everything, he lives with a view of the beach. Oh my God. I'm telling you, the, the first day we went, I went to school at Syracuse for four years, a little over four years. Um, but the first day we went for a tour and it was COVID and I saw more kids in bathing suits than I saw in four years of Syracuse. <laughs> You know, he gets up and he surfs in the morning um, and he played lacrosse for the past couple of years and they have a view of the ocean. It might be lacking some of that East Coast charm and the snow, but I'm telling you, it's amazing up there. I got two amazing boys. He's having a blast. I have a 17 year old who's a junior in high school and uh, I can't convince him to go to Syracuse either. I tried to convince both of them and no luck. I should have FaceTimed you while it was snowing an inch an hour while we were inside Fagan's last Friday night. That would have done the trick for sure. No, no, no. We did that. I took my younger son on a tour of Syracuse and it did that. It snowed the entire time. And that's not the reason they didn't want to go. He actually enjoyed that. It just, it didn't fly. My wife went to Vassar again, people that are smarter than I am. Yes. <laughs> and you being an Allentown PA guy, my wife went to Lehigh. So there you go. Yeah. So they don't want to go there either. But Again, you know, working together, it has its challenges, but it's, um, it's fantastic. I, I am, I'm grateful for the life that we've been able to develop together. I'll tell you another great story about the station, if I could. I'm going, I'm going back and forth. And Please. By the way, maybe this is why I direct 30 seconds, because I can't keep things straight for too long, and I am going <laughs> back and forth all the time. Uh -uh. It is easy to see with your charisma how you convinced uh, Hal's son Brett to go to Syracuse because uh, he, he told that story in the podcast that the minute he met you and saw what you were doing and saw your energy, he's like, yeah, my dad can tell me one thing, but this guy, this is why I'm going to Syracuse. Listen, Brett's a great kid. I don't know that I convinced Brett to go. I just sat and I talked to Brett, but he's a great kid and he's going to go a long way and, and he's... Um, a credit to his parents for sure. And it's funny seeing him in Syracuse because he looks just like his dad, but that's another story altogether. Yeah, and he's been out here too. He interned uh, all last spring, I think, and I, I got to see him a lot. Mm -hmm. So this whole thing about 
hotshot Scott and this character. I kind of fought against the character when it was first given to me. And, and you find that middle ground of where hotshot Scott is and where Scott Bergstein is. Right. And, you know, you meld the two of them together. And I sort of played with the character. And, and at times I really played it up. At one point, everything I said on the, the station, it was hotshot here, aloha. <laughs> there was a cadence to it. It was hotshot here, aloha. And <laughs> that became a thing. But here's the thing that we didn't realize. I don't think even when we went on air, even when the ratings started to come in, that we realized anybody was listening to us. Okay. Right? Yeah. Until you start walking around campus and people start going, aloha. Yes. I've never even been to Hawaii. <laughs> it's just kind of something I came up with. And I was like, oh, hmm. There's something going on here. Now, again, I played with characters. I wasn't sure I was ever going to go into radio. It was certainly a path I would have gone into because I loved it. But I came out here to give L.A. a shot and it worked, right? So by my senior year, I think I played with, at one point, I was hotshot Scotty Burke. At one point, it was just Scotty Burke and, I, and it was me. And right after me, it was Scotty Burke and Scott E. Meach. And like we were after each other on the radio. <laughs> but here's the thing. I played with that. Eventually, I went back to Hotshot. When I graduated, I was like, oh, Hotshot's gone. Hotshot's dead, so to speak, right? Okay. Okay. I came to LA. I was in LA pretty quickly. And here's what I never understood. As I got here and I would see people in bars, and LA is the second biggest city in the country, I constantly, I am not kidding you, Jag, from across the bar, I'd hear, Hotshot. No kidding. All the time. And wow. most of the time, I didn't know who it was. Sometimes it would be Rich Goldner, another guy from the station. But other times, wherever I went, I'd be walking in Westwood, hot shot. I'd be walking in Santa Monica, hot shot. What it did was it gave me a community in L.A. which I didn't know existed. I swear to you, Jack, I was on a plane on my way somewhere. And in the plane, I got hot shot. No kidding. Okay, I'm going to tell you one other story. And this is when it really hit me. Now I'm going to go all the way back. So. Sophomore year, I'm given afternoon drive. I'm on the radio. I was up there a few weeks before class starts. And I get into my class with Dr. Wright, freshman year. And I walk into the class and he walks in as the very first class. He looks around, he looks at his class sheet, he looks around, he goes, Hot shot, Scott, major market huh. sound. And I, I didn't, I had met him. I didn't know that he knew who I was. I had no clue. And I was equal parts embarrassed in class, but <laughs> equal parts so proud Yeah, that Rick Wright knew who I was. It's like a celebrity cameo. Like first day of class, like he walks in and knows who you are before class even starts. First day of class, hot shot, major market sound. Never forget it. And, and I can't do an impression of him, but thank God for Rick Wright and everything that he's done for the school and this station. We knew that we were making an impression. I'm going to give you one more philosophy, Jag, uh, and you can ask me your questions about whatever you, wherever you want to go. I think you've already covered it all, but go ahead. <laughs> um, I have this philosophy that life is a macrocosm of college or college is a microcosm of life, however you want to put it. Okay. Your 20s are your freshman year. You're not entirely sure where to go. You don't really know everybody. You know, you might be having a little trouble finding your way but you're having a lot of fun. Yeah. Right? 30s is sophomore year. Now you know your way around. 
you're having a blast. You know where to go, where to have a blast, but you're also setting yourself up for what's going to come, right? Sophomore year, you're setting yourself up. You're choosing a major, so to speak. Mm-hmm. To me, you don't need to choose a major until your sophomore year, until you're in your 30s, unless you know what you want to do. In my case, I thought I was going to be a sports broadcaster, then thought I was going to be Geraldo Rivera, learned that I was going to tell stories, right? All right. Junior year is your 40s. Junior year, you got things set up. You should be pretty well into your career. You're starting to really hit your stride. Hopefully you, you know, maybe had a family if that's what you want to do. But now you're getting serious about what's coming, right? 50s is your senior year. A little bit of senioritis kicks in, but you've pretty much made it. And then 60s is graduate school. By the time you're a 70s, you're getting your doctorate. You should know what's going on and your, your philosophy should be set. I don't know if that means anything to you, but again, I think it all came from school. As a 42-year-old, I really do enjoy that analogy. So I'm in, my, I'm in the beginning of my junior year. I like that. Thank you. Yeah, there you go. It's time to get serious. That, I think, is a great place to leave it. Hotshot Scott, you're right about the names. I appreciate you calling me Jag because it's a little bit of a tell in the podcast. If somebody calls me John, they've never met me before the podcast. If somebody calls me Jag, they've met me at Z89 or at a bank ward or in my radio career. So I appreciate you calling me Jag because we've just recently met as well. Jag, you again. Thank you for all the stuff that you're doing. The podcast is amazing. It's reconnected a lot of us. Congratulations. Well done. I've said this before and I will say it again. For as much as I put into the podcast, I have gotten more out of it than I could ever imagine. It's because of people like you. Hotshot Scott, I will say aloha. Thank you very much, Jack. The WJPZ at 50 podcast is created entirely by the staff and alumni of the world's greatest media classroom. It's hosted by John Jag Gay, class of 2002. Editing help from James Bames Grundy III, class of 2020. Imaging by Maureen Cooper, class of 1999. And Ed Lacombe, class of 1985. Podcast artwork by Marty Dundix, class of 2001. Follow WJPZ at 50 on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you're listening right now.